0: Chapter 12 of What Shall We Do? by Leo Tolstoy This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 What did it all mean? I had lived in the country, and had entered into relations with the country poor. It is not out of false modesty, but that I may state the truth, which is necessary in order to understand the run of all my thoughts and feelings, that I must say that, in the country, I had done perhaps but little for the poor, the help which had been required of me was so small, but even the little I had done had been useful, and had formed round me an atmosphere of love and sympathy with my fellow creatures, in the midst of whom it might yet be possible for me to quiet the gnawing of my conscience as to the unlawfulness of my life of luxury. On going to the city, I had hoped for the same happy relations with the poor, but here things were upon quite another footing. In the city... Poverty was at once less truthful, more exacting, and more bitter than in the country. It was chiefly because there was so much more of it accumulated together that it produced upon me a most harrowing impression. What I experienced at Leopin's house made my own luxurious life seem monstrously evil. I could not doubt the sincerity and strength of this conviction. Yet, notwithstanding this, I was quite incapable of carrying out a revolution which demanded an entire change in my mode of life. I was frightened at the prospect, and so I resorted to compromises. I accepted what I was told by everyone, and what has been said by everybody since the world began, that riches and luxury are in themselves no evil, that they are given by God, and that whilst continuing to live luxuriously, it is possible to help those in need. I believed this, and wanted to do so and I wrote an article in which I called upon all rich people to help. These all admitted themselves morally obliged to agree with me, but evidently did not wish to do or give anything for the poor, or could not do so. I then began visiting, and discovered what I had in no way expected to see. On the one hand I saw in these dens, as I had at first called them, men whom it was impossible for me to help because they were working men, accustomed to labour and privation and therefore having a much firmer hold on life than I had. On the other hand, I saw miserable men whom I could not aid because they were just such as I was myself. The majority of the poor whom I saw were wretched merely because they had lost the capacity, desire, and habit of earning their bread. In other words, their misery consisted in the fact that they were just like myself. Whereas of poor people to whom it was possible to give immediate assistance, those suffering from illness, cold, and hunger, I found none except the starving Agathia. And I became persuaded that, being so far removed from the life of those whom I wished to succor, it was almost impossible to find such need as I sought, because all real need was attended to by those amongst whom these unhappy creatures lived. And my principal conviction now was that, with money, I could never reform that life of misery which these people led. I was persuaded of this, yet a feeling of shame to leave off all I had begun, and self-deception as to my own virtues, made me continue my plan for some time longer till it died a natural death. Thus, only with great difficulty, and the help of Ivan Fodotic, I managed to distribute in the tavern at Hržanov's house the thirty-seven rubles which I considered were not my own. Of course, I might have continued this style of thing and have transformed it into a kind of charity. And by importuning those who promised to give me money, I might have obtained and distributed more, thus comforting myself with the idea of my own excellence. But I became convinced on the one hand that we rich people do not wish, and are also unable, to distribute to the poor a portion of our superfluities, we have so many wants ourselves, and that money should not be given to any one if we really wished to do good, instead of merely distributing it at random, as I had done in the Rajanov tavern. So I dropped the affair entirely, and in despair quitted Moscow for my own village. I intended, on returning home, to write a pamphlet on my experience, and to state why my project had not succeeded. I wanted to justify myself from the imputations which resulted from my article on the census. I wanted also to denounce society and its heartless indifference. And I desired to point out the causes of this town misery, and the necessity for endeavouring to remedy it, as well as the means which I thought were requisite for this purpose. I began even then to write, and fancied I had many very important facts to communicate. But in vain did I rack my brain. I could not manage it, notwithstanding the superabundance of material at my command, because of the irritation under which I wrote, and because I had not yet learned by experience what was necessary to grasp the question rightly. Still more because I had not become fully conscious of the cause of it all a very simple cause, deep-rooted in myself. So the pamphlet was not finished at the commencement of the present year, 1884-1885. to In the matter of moral law we witness a strange phenomenon to which men pay too little attention. If I speak to an unlearned man about geology, astronomy, history, natural philosophy, or mathematics, he receives the information as quite new to him, and never says to me, There is nothing new in what you tell me. Everyone knows it, and I have known it for a long time. But tell a man one of the highest moral truths, in the simplest manner, in such a way as it has never been before formulated, and every ordinary man, particularly one who does not take any interest in moral questions, and above all one who dislikes them, is sure to say, Who does not know that? It has been always known and expressed. And he really believes this. Only those who can appreciate moral truths know how to value their elucidation and simplification by a long and laborious process, or can prize the transition from a proposition or desire at first vaguely understood to a firm and determined expression calling for a corresponding change of conduct. We are all accustomed to consider moral doctrine to be a very insipid and dull affair, in which there can be nothing new or interesting. Whereas in reality human life, with all its complicated and varied actions, which seem to have no connection with morals, political activity, activity in the sciences, in the arts, and in commerce, has no other object than to elucidate moral truths more and more, and to confirm, simplify, and make them accessible to all. I recollect once while walking in a street in Moscow I saw a man come out and examine the flagstones attentively, Then, choosing one of them, he sat down by it and began to scrape and rub it vigorously. "'What is he doing with the pavement?' I wondered. And, having come up close to him, I discovered he was a young man from a butcher's shop, and was sharpening his knife on the flagstone. He was not thinking about the stones when examining them, and still less while doing his work, he was merely sharpening his knife. It was necessary for him to do so in order to cut the meat, but to me it seemed that he was doing something to the pavement.' In the same way, mankind seems to be occupied with commerce, treaties, wars, sciences, arts. And yet for them one thing only is important, and they do only that. They are elucidating those moral laws by which they live. Moral laws are already in existence, and mankind has been and is merely rediscovering them. This elucidation appears to be unimportant and imperceptible to one who has no need of moral law, and who does not desire to live by it. Yet this is not only the chief, but is the sole business of all men. The elucidation is imperceptible, in the same way as the difference between a sharp knife and a blunt one is imperceptible. A knife remains a knife, and one who has not to cut anything with it will not notice its edge. But for one who understands that all his life depends more or less upon whether his knife is blunt or sharp, every improvement in sharpening it is important. And such a man knows that there must be no limit to this improvement and that the knife is only really a knife when it is sharp, and when it cuts what it has to cut. The conviction of this truth flashed upon me when I began to write my pamphlet. Previously it seemed to me that I knew everything about my subject, that I had a thorough understanding of everything connected with those questions which had been awakened in me by the impressions made in the Open's house and during the census. But when I tried to sum them up, and to put them onto paper, it turned out that the knife would not cut, and had to be sharpened. So it is only now, after three years, that I feel my knife is sharp enough for me to cut out what I want. It is not that I have learned new things. My thoughts are still the same. But they were blunt formerly. They kept diverging in every direction. There was no edge to them. Nor was anything brought, as it is now, to one central point, to one most simple and plain conclusion. End of chapter 12